0: North Carolina, the land that airlines forgot. Maybe that isn't quite true, but Janet and I are in the American South visiting family, and it wasn't the easiest time getting there. We weren't alone. Airlines having trouble again. Airmageddon. That's what some are calling it. Cancelled flights, delayed takeoffs, thousands stuck. We had to get from Washington to see family in North Carolina. Three years ago, that wouldn't have been a big deal. Flying from one end of the continent to the other, even on the 4th of July weekend. But a couple of days before we left, our airline canceled the second leg of our trip. After hours on hold, we were able to get new flights. Then those were canceled. Eventually, it was sorted at the airport. What a headache. What a time. Few things in life go the way we expect, but we can know that Jesus is in control of it all, even if it's unexpected. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris, sharing the great story that's all about Jesus, and we're in a series this week called Christians You Should Know. In a minute, I want to share with you a conversation I had in Oxford, England, with John Lennox back in 2008. We recorded at the home of the late C.S. Lewis. It was a delightful visit, sitting at the desk of the late Oxford professor with a current Oxford prof. John is a great defender of the Christian faith, just like Lewis was. But as you'll hear, there was a time in his life when he struggled with his faith, And the Lord brought C.S. Lewis into his life when he was a young student at Cambridge in the early 60s. It's a story I know you'll be happy you heard, so stay with me. After the program, I want to send you the new film, The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis on DVD. It's this untold story of how Lewis came to know Christ as his Savior. And as you watch, your faith will be inspired I also know it would be a great movie to share with someone who's struggling with their faith. So just call us in a little bit at 865 Haven. 865 Haven. Or watch the movie trailer on our website and you can make your gift there at haventoday.org. haventoday.org. Now let's open this program in July with Scott Crepane and crown him with many crowns. Crown
1: him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music, but in song. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. And hail Him as Thy matchless King through all eternity. Now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die.
0: This is Haven today, and we are coming to you from the kilns. And uh, I'm sitting at the desk of C.S. Lewis across from uh, Dr. John Lennox, who is a professor at Oxford University, three earned doctorates. We're sitting at the desk of a man who actually had an influence on you early in
2: your life, didn't he? He did indeed, yes. I went to Cambridge in 1962 to read mathematics, and it was Lewis's last year as... A lecturer there teaching. He was dying at that point of, mm. of cancer, I think. And I had read most of his books before I came to university because I had a very enlightened parents who allowed me to think and encouraged me to read. So the English department lecture theatre was just across Mill Lane from the maths department. So I sneaked out once or twice from the maths lectures, which I should have been attending diligently and went to hear Lewis, and I'm so thrilled I did because it was it was a profound experience just going into that lecture theatre packed with students, sitting on the floor, and Lewis bursting in through the door in the winter, dressed in his big heavy coat and starting to lecture as he came through the door and unwinding his scarf and taking off his coat so that he was in full flight by the time he got to the lectern. And then when he finished his lecture, the reverse process happened, so his last words were uttered as he closed the door behind him. <laughs> So it was quite dramatic.
0: (laughs) You were a believer uh, when you went to Cambridge. You told me that in the past. uh, But at the same time, uh, here you were listening to Lewis. Lewis was an atheist. And early in your experience at university, you befriended atheists, didn't you?
2: Oh, yes. Well, of course, Lewis had been a Christian some years when I Mm -hmm. heard him. But he was an atheist up until middle life, certainly. And I came up to uh, Cambridge as a Christian. But I was approached, or at least in a conversation in my first week as a student, when somebody said, do you go to church, do you believe in God? And then the questioner said, oh, sorry, uh, I forgot, you're Irish. They all believe in God over there and they fight about it. And it raised a question that, of course, wasn't new to me, but it raised it more sharply than ever. Was my faith and my commitment simply a product of my parents faith and their parents faith in fact Irish genetics environment and Mm -hmm. if I'd been born somewhere else I'd have believed something else so that propelled me on really a lifelong journey of trying to find out what people who had not been exposed to my background or upbringing believed and so the diametrically opposite pole to my own position was atheism so I looked around for an atheist and found one and uh, we became friends and we entered into a dialogue he became a Christian about a year later and I suppose I've been talking to atheists ever since but uh, when he became a Christian that was important to me to see that people could assess the evidence for themselves and independently of their background they could come to a conclusion and make a commitment of faith And I have found over the years that by discussing with people who don't share my background, discussing openly, I found that that has confirmed my faith. The more I've exposed my own position to alternative arguments, the more that has strengthened my own position, in fact.
0: It's interesting that evolution is the one theory that cannot be questioned. But you actually commit the heresy of questioning the theory of macroevolution. How provable is it?
2: Well, my book, the argument in my book, and this is important to notice, is at two levels. You see, Richard Dawkins particularly, who is a zoologist, claims that you can deduce atheism from biology. Now, I'm sceptical of that, wearing my philosopher's hat and my scientist's hat. Firstly, evolution is a biological theory. Atheism is a worldview. They don't belong to the same category. One is science, the other is worldview. And that sends my philosophical antennae quivering a bit mm-hmm. and the red lights start flashing. And it seems to me that what's going on here is a fundamental category mistake and a very serious error. And it goes like this. You see, when Sir Isaac Newton discovered the law of gravitation and discovered at one level the heaven's work, so to speak. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, marvellous, I've got a mechanism, therefore there's no agent who designed it. No, what he said was, what a marvellous mechanism. It must be a very clever agent who designed it. Mm -hmm. Now the point I'm making here is this. The existence of a mechanism that does something is not in itself an argument for the non-existence of an agent who designed it. Mm -hmm. If we understand the laws of internal combustion on which a motor car operates, that doesn't prove that Henry Ford didn't exist. And it seems to me that this is the kind of error that's being committed. Here's a mechanism, natural selection and mutation. It clearly does something. Mm -hmm. Now, just for a moment, for the sake of the argument, let's suppose it did everything. There's a mechanism that produces something. Okay, well, how does that prove there isn't an agent who designed it? And somebody said, ah, but there's randomness involved. Well, so there isn't a self-winding watch. But because a self-winding watch winds itself up by the random motions of your arm, you don't argue that there's no watchmaker. In fact, you say he's more sophisticated because he did it that way and not the usual wind-up way. So that I want to argue, number one, that whatever the answer to the evolution question is, you still can't deduce atheism from it. Now, once you see that, you can then say, of course, there is another question. Does the proposed theory of evolution bear all the weight that's put on it? It really bears some weight. Natural selection produces differences in human beings, produces differences in plants, and so on and so forth. That's not controversial. Mutations, we all, alas, suffer from them. So mutation and natural selection produce something. But does it bear all the weight? And... I raise questions in my book, I'm not a biologist, I'm a mathematician, so I try to read as much as I can and see the way things are going and I notice that within the biological field, there's a a vast division among evolutionists. Richard Dawkins says it all happened gradually. Stephen Jay Gould uh, says it it happened with great jumps. So I say, well, that's interesting. There's not just one view out there, although, of course, they all believe in the, the theory of evolution. And where I find the major problem is not the idea that things can adapt to niches and so on and so forth, and the minor variations that Darwin brilliantly observed, like finch-beak lengths and all this kind of thing, it's the creation of something novel. That Mm -hmm. is increase in information. And that's why, as a mathematician, I'm more interested, actually, in the origin of life itself, because that's where we're getting down to the heart of the digital-type information that I mentioned before. So, to cut a long story short... I am very sceptical about the weight that some people put on this mechanism. I am extremely sceptical when it comes to the origin of life, because it seems to me that it demands an external input of information from outside. But whatever the ultimate answer to that is, you can't get atheism out of it. Mm. Which is why, in the world today, leading people like the director of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins would describe himself as a believer in evolution, and simultaneously a believer in God.
0: So here you are in Oxford, and uh, you're not only a theist, but you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you find that a little hard as a scientist and
2: as a philosopher? Not in the slightest, because the Christian faith, the bottom line for me is that the Christian faith is true. That It has been the thing that has always motivated me and it's the same motivation as science. What is the truth about reality? So I find no conflict here at all because I think that the evidence supports the claims of Christ and in the sense of the objective claim that he rose from the dead as a matter of ancient history, that he was God incarnate, Those are the only answers that make sense to me of the data and of the evidence. So if the scientific mind or the rational mind is following evidence to its logical conclusion, I'm not the slightest bit ashamed of believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because I see that the evidence points powerfully that way. The historical evidence outside of me, but then my own subjective experience of what It means to make that commitment and how it works out in life. I think what may be behind your question, though, is that as a scientist, many people, and Richard Dawkins said it to me quite recently, he said you don't really believe all that stuff about the resurrection. What about David Hume? And many of my colleagues in science think that the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume disposed of the possibility of believing in miracles long ago. Now, I simply think that is false because Hume made a definition of miracles has become very popular that they violate the laws of nature. And to my mind, that's nonsense because as C.S. Lewis pointed out and we're sitting at his desk, C.S. Lewis, who's helped me enormously in many ways ever since my early days at Cambridge when I listened to him lecture, C.S. Lewis makes the point that Miracles don't violate the laws of nature. And he gives a lovely little illustration. And it goes like this. He says, law of arithmetic, 2 plus 2 equals 4. So if you put $200 plus $200 in your bedside drawer tonight, that's $400. If you wake up in the morning and find only $50, you don't say, oh, the laws of nature have been broken. But you might say the laws of the United States have been broken. <laughs> But how do you know that the laws of the United States have been broken? Because you know the law of arithmetic. It hasn't been broken. So you know somebody's put their hand into the system. Mm -hmm. Now that's exactly the same. We know that dead bodies don't normally rise. Otherwise, we'd never recognize a resurrection as anything special. So the point that Lewis makes is very important, it seems to me. In order to have what we call miracle, you need to have two things. One is a system of that has regularities built into them. And secondly... God who's outside that system can feed a new event in. God is not a prisoner of his laws because those laws are our formulations of what normally happens. So when God becomes human, to put it in contemporary language, he codes himself into human life. He codes himself into one of the cells, one of the eggs in Mary's body. And then nine months later, Nature takes over, assimilates it, as Lewis says, and nine months later, a child is born, as Dr. Luke tells us. In other words, laws of nature are not broken. It's God feeding a new event in. And you see, <laughs> resurrections aren't normal, nor are they natural, but no Christian ever claimed they were. This is super nature. That is, as the New Testament says, quite explicitly. It didn't come about by natural processes. Of course not. It came about by an enormous injection of power. ...by God from the outside. So to suggest that miracles, in that sense, God doing something special... ...that's not within the normal cause-effect web, violate the laws of nature is simply nonsense to my mind. But secondly, the other nonsensical thing is the argument that many of the new atheists use that in the New Testament times, they were so pre-scientific, they had no notion about the laws of nature and they could believe Mm -hmm. in miracles easily. And of course we can't. It's nonsense. Mm -hmm. Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, knew exactly where babies came from. Mm -hmm. And when he heard Mary's story and discovered she was pregnant, he he wanted to divorce her. Mm -hmm. That's part of the historical record. He was a pious Jew. And it took some convincing for him to accept her. The blind man, that Jesus cured and there was a big discussion with the religious authorities, was he blind before and what had happened, and he said, look he said, gentlemen uh, <laughs> uh, it hasn't been known since the creation of the world that a man who's been born blind, he knew the regularity yes. you see, so this is absurd, as if they were somehow unintelligent people at the time of the New Testament uh, Why has atheism become so popular today? Well Popularity, I don't know how I'd measure popularity, but these people have all written best selling books. And if we ask them what's driven that, one of the factors certainly is 9 11. Mm. Richard Dawkins claims that 9 11 radicalized him. And I think the conclusion that they publicly draw is such an easy one to follow in a way that it has immense popular appeal. This is religion. Nine Eleven. Mm-hmm. okay it's extremist religion but it's got to stop where does extremist religion come from it grows on the edge of moderate religion therefore all religion has to go so they lump all religions into one box and decide that it's time for religion to be destroyed and Stephen Weinberg in a conference in the US last year I think it was he said that perhaps the best thing that we scientists can do is to finally bury religion mm-hmm. and so on the one hand, there's nine eleven, which sent a shockwave around the world, as an example of what extremist, fanatical religion can do, as the new atheists understand it. That's the one hand, and on the other hand, the cultural authority of science. So they're bringing the two together to say that science is going to bury God finally, and then they say, "Well, we don't need God anyway." To be good, they bring in the ethical questions and feel that they can provide a base for ethics. So there's a lot of appeal there because people are naturally afraid, the rise of terrorism, its connection with uh, religion and so on. So I think that's their own analysis of what drives it. Christopher Hitchens is very extreme in his book, God is Not Great. He says religion poisons everything. It's an unrelieved evil.
0: (laughs) I noticed in the first debate that I saw between you and Richard Dawkins, you actually showed love to Richard Dawkins. Surprise me. Uh, You were trying to beat him up. I thought you made some better points than he did. Was I accurate in reading the fact that you
2: actually, actually love Richard Dawkins? Well, I would never try to beat anybody up. Because I don't think Christ did that. In other words, it seems to me that what is very important is to establish a civil public square where we can debate these ideas. I am diametrically opposed to Richard Dawkins' ideas. But as a Christian, I believe that all men and women are made in the image of God. And therefore, We must, I feel, debate these ideas in a very civilised way. And that's what I tried to do. Whether or not I was successful, uh, other people must judge. But that, to my mind, is the important thing. My motivation for doing the debate was not to score cheap points at all. It was to get these things aired so that the public who listen can judge between the two views. And they can decide for themselves.
0: At the end of that same debate that I saw you uh, uh, engage Richard Dawkins, you actually made a flat-out defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You said you believed in the resurrection. I thought his jaw dropped at the time, and he said, now I've got you. I knew you would come around to this. But uh, you you do believe in the resurrection, don't you?
2: Well, of course. It's the essential Centre base of Christianity. When Christianity burst on the world in the first century, one of the famous incidents is where Paul, the senior Christian apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, um, was called to account in front of the famous Areopagus Philosophical Court in Athens. And he pointed out then, much to the astonishment and jaw dropping of the audience then, it hasn't changed at all, that. God has appointed a day in which he'd judge the world and he's going to judge the world by Jesus Christ, he will be the judge, and the evidence for that, that he's given to all men, not just to believers, it is objective historical evidence, is that he raised Him from the dead. So to my mind, this is the heart of it, this was the central apostolic message preached from the word go, without the resurrection Christianity would not exist. So I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of it. And since it's the heart of what I believe brings meaning and purpose into life, then I feel it's important to defend it.
0: This is Haven Today in a program called Christians You Should Know with Dr. John Lennox recorded in Oxford, England at the home of C.S. Lewis. If you'd like to hear the extended interview, please check out our Great Stories podcast at haventoday.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And speaking of Lewis, for your gift to the ministry, I'd like to send you the new film called The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis on DVD. Your faith will be encouraged as you see a hard-boiled atheist transform into a follower of Jesus. And it would be perfect to share with someone who's struggling with their own faith. Our number you can call right now is 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN, or watch the movie trailer on our website, and then make your gift there at haventoday.org, haventoday.org. And let me just pause for a moment and give you an invitation. If you have never been or would like to go again and walk where Jesus walked, Why don't you join me in Israel? We have an Israel Jordan tour that's beginning at the end of November. I hope you can join me. Just go to our website, haventoday.org, and you'll find information. Or call us on our phone number and say, we want to know more. I'm Charles Morris. Thanks for joining me. Come back again tomorrow when again we get to share together the great story. It's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with Jesus, I'm Charles Morris with Haven Ministries, inviting you to anchor your day in God's word. Whenever you see a sign on the grass at the park that says, don't walk on the grass, what are you tempted to do? Walk on the grass. Wet paint, don't touch. First thing we wanna do is check if the paint is still wet. We just can't follow directions. Humans are ungovernable. Israel was no different. The Lord had to set boundaries at Exodus when he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Don't touch that mountain. If you do, you'll die. That was a picture of his holiness. Sinful man cannot appear before the Lord on a whim. We must be purified, not through the law, but in Christ the curtain has been ripped. And we have access once again. Read God's Word daily. Visit GetAnchor.com.